as we approach this text, let us uh, keep ourselves engaged and, and looking for um, the gospel and what God is at work doing in the world in His redemptive ways. Amen? Well, as we prepare to approach the text, let's go to God's Word in prayer. Heavenly Father, in Your light we see light. So we come to Your Word, desiring to see light, light for our lives, light for our paths. Lord, we pray that You would give it by Your Holy Spirit, that You would transform us through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Blessed, or the hashtag blessed. Uh, In the words of the New York Times columnist Jessica Bennett, has become so overused that it has been, quote, all but stripped of its meaning. (laughs) I think that's probably accurate. It It implies that God has bestowed the recipient with favor, blessed, yet it's used to describe everything from winning a football game, or for that matter, just catching a pass, really blessed to be able to catch that pass, to to finding half-priced strawberries at Trader Joe's, you know. Might might post it on our Facebook as we go. Be that as it may, the word itself almost pleads for the recovery of its own meaning because it's, it's one of the most significant words in the entire Bible. We can't help but read our Bibles and see it, so if if we don't recover the meaning of this word, we're going to lose so much meaning of what we are looking through in Scripture. I refuse to just accept that it means happy. It does include that, but it it means so much more. So much more. God bless them. What does it mean to bless, to speak good about? Its significance, if we start reading the Bible, and maybe you start every year, you say, I'm going to make it through the Bible, and whether you achieve that or don't achieve that, I don't know. But you don't have to succeed very far to get to the vital importance of this word. Because in the first chapter, right immediately after God creates man, it says, and he blessed them and said to them. This blessing that God gives to them in Genesis 1.28 has something to do with who we are at the very core of our being and in our existence. It's the very opposite of the curse that causes pain and the thorns and thorns instead of increase and fruitfulness. Blessed. Paul tells us that in, in the book of Galatians. So you fast forward all the way to the New Testament. And Paul, in, in a letter where he's, he's trying to hammer out the, the very gospel itself. He's dealing with the church that may be on that edge of falling off the precipice into a non-gospel. And, and this subject comes to bear. And, and what he says about it is almost shocking to our ears. If, if you were to come in today and our, someone were to have asked you, For what purpose? Or why did Jesus die on the cross? I I would venture to guess that most of us would not have given this answer. Now it's right here. It's in the text. We we even might be able to quote it. But most of us probably would not have given this answer. And that's not the only answer, of course. And so whatever answer we would have given, I'm sure, would have been a good answer. 
I'm simply pointing out that, that here is an answer that Paul gives that might not be on our radar screen. And you say, well, what is that? Well, in, in ver- chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Short version, Jesus died on a cross so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to you and me, Gentiles. So that here, sitting today, we might have the blessing given to Abraham. Wow, important enough for Jesus to die on the cross in order that we might get it. What is this blessing? What does it mean? That we'll score a touchdown or catch a pass? That we might get voted prom king or queen? That we, that we get half-priced strawberries, or, or maybe we can put it on our customized license plate of our new Lexus, hashtag blast. Is, is that what it's pointing to us? Is there something more, something more significant, of greater significance, some other purpose? Well, I would suggest that there is much, much more. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, the last scene ended with Jacob, also known as Israel, and the names are used interchangeably. We'll go back and forth. Jacob or Israel declaring this in the very last verse of chapter 45. I'm convinced my my son Joseph is still alive. I, I will go and see him before I die. Today's scene is the unfolding of that event. Jacob goes to Egypt, sees Joseph, and then dies. Though, of course, in chapters 48 through 50, there'll be kind of a flashback to that ending scene of his death. Our scene ends with announcing his age at death and so forth, so we know that he dies. So today we're going to look at this this scene. Joseph leaving the promised land, I'm sorry, Jacob leaving the promised land with his entire family, going to the land of Egypt. We're going to look at it under four headings. The first is the blessing means that God is with you. God is with you. And the second being that the blessing is for others. So God is with you for others. The third, the blessing is through you. So God is with you for others through you. And then finally, the blessing points to a promise. And that's to, re, to, to remember that, that it's always pointing beyond itself to a promise. And, and that promise is vital. So we'll look at that. And if you would look with me at the first heading uh, or under the first heading, the blessing means God is with you. Uh, chapter 46, and we'll begin in verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the, uh, to the God of his father, Isaac. Beersheba. So he sets out. He heads to Beersheba. Beersheba was a place of God's provision and blessing. We first hear about Beersheba when we hear about Hagar and Ishmael going out into the wilderness of Beersheba. So not specifically Beersheba, but the wilderness surrounding it, a desert area where finally giving up on life, they're crying out to the Lord. The Lord hears, and the Lord gives a promise, and the Lord provides for them in that setting. But then we hear about it in uh, uh, Genesis 22, right immediately after Abraham passes the test 
where he, he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but the, the Lord stops him by way of an angel, provides a ram. And that, that story concludes with Abraham then going to Beersheba, where he settles in for a bit. Beersheba. It's a place where there are wells of water found as provision by the people of God. Jacob goes there to offer sacrifices. Now think about it. For a quarter of a century, he's not seen his son. He's been pretty sure his son is dead. I mean, he had a coat with blood on it. He's certain that his son is dead. He's been grieving his death for a quarter of a century. And as soon as he hears that his son is alive, and, and he in, that chapter 45 ended where he finally came, he was finally convinced that it was true. What's the first thing he does? Well, we might assume the first thing he does is he heads off to see Joseph, but that's not the first thing he does. It should be a little bit surprising to us that the first thing he does is not that. What he does is he goes to Beersheba to worship God and offer sacrifices. God has restored his son to him. God has brought life from death. God has fulfilled so much for Jacob despite the years of his suffering and grief. Jacob had made a promise at the beginning of his journey, way back in Genesis 28, when he's first leaving home and he's, he's, he's leaving mom and dad and he's off to find a family and he's going to get his own start. And like anyone who's starting a family, you, you, you make some commitments to God and you hope for God's blessing and help along the way and he does that. And there we read in Genesis 28 verse 20 that Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking and will feed me, uh, will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Oh, we see here that God has done exceedingly more. Then Jacob had asked in raising up his dead son Joseph to life. And Jacob does not forget this. That's not the first time he's come back to do this for the Lord. But, but he does not forget this. So the first place he goes is to fulfill this vow to bring a sacrifice to God and to worship God. I was talking with somebody earlier this week and they, they just mentioned to me that they, they, they were uh, bringing by a, a, a tithe check. They had forgotten to write one for a couple of weeks, so it kind of got built up. And in the process of writing it, they're looking at the amount of a couple of weeks added on it. So suddenly I realized why we call it a sacrifice. <laughs> Jacob does not forget the Lord. And so he's there offering a sacrifice, but he has a vision. We read about this vision beginning here in verse 2. It says, And God spoke to Israel. Now remember, Israel is the name of the nation, but it's the name of Jacob as well at this point. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I, here I am, he replied. This wording of this vision might sound familiar to you. It's used at various points, but this wording is identical to wording used in one other place in Genesis. I mean, in every way identical, and that is in, in Genesis 22 when Abraham was tested regarding his son Isaac. There, there twice, the Lord calls to Abraham and he responds, Here I am. The first time at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord calls Abraham. And he says, Here I am. And he calls him to give 
bring his son to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him and, and bring him to the Lord. And then he arrives at Mount Moriah, and you may recall the scene when he's about to, to, to bring the knife down upon his son. He's bound his son upon the altar. And the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, then cries out, double, Abraham, Abraham, just like we see here, Jacob, Jacob. And the response, again, identical, here I am, here I am. In, in that first scene, Abraham had to let go of the promised blessing of a son, the promised son through whom God would bless Abraham and give him descendants that would be a great nation and that through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. Without a son, how is the promise ever going to be fulfilled? And yet we know from the book of Hebrews that he had to trust that God was able to raise the dead. And he did, and he trusted God. Likewise, here, Jacob has to let go of the promised blessing of the land. You see, just like you can't have descendants without a son, you can't have a nation without a land. And yet, here in this scene, Jacob is being called to leave the land for the survival of of his people, of his family. But in leaving the land, it's as if he's letting go of the very promise. What was the promise? The promise is, I'll give you this land as an inheritance. And here he was living in it. And now he's going to leave it. It was every bit as much of a test as was Abraham's. Maybe not as emotionally felt in our minds, but for for, for Jacob as we see, it's it's a serious test. And here the Lord is making a promise to him as he leaves this land. And by the way, lest we think that this is no big deal... Uh, Bruce Waltke points out that the word land, that's the Hebrew word for land, not the word land, but that word for land, is the fourth most frequently used word in the entire Old Testament. That's how frequently it's talked about. That's a pretty big deal. And, and then in these two chapters, 46 and 47, and I think because of the fact that that. Jacob is having to give up the land. The word land comes up 28 times in the space of two chapters. And in some verses, as we'll see later, three times just to kind of hammer home the point. It's as if the the, the writer keeps pressing on the sore spot that Jacob was feeling. Jacob needs to trust that God can raise the dead. The dead promise. The dead promise of the land after he leaves the land and with his entire family. And look at the promise the Lord makes to him beginning in verse 3. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I, and, and it really should read because it's emphatic, I myself will go down to Egypt with you. And I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in their carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. Notice this promise. I myself will go down with you and bring you up. Now who's the you? I will go down with you and I'll bring you up. Who's the you? The, the you is Israel. But Israel is a man. His name is Jacob, right? Now Israel. But when he goes down, he's a man with a a small family or a large family, I guess we could say. But 
when, he, when the Lord brings him back up, actually by the time the Lord brings him back up, Jacob's going to have passed. So the Israel that he brings back up is not the man, but the nation. He goes down to Egypt as a man. He comes up as a nation. And this promise is about how God will make his descendants into a great nation. This is the how. God, how will he do it? He will descend with them and bring them back. I myself will descend with you and I myself will bring you back. That's how he's going to make them into a great nation. Jacob, Israel, has to let go of the promise in order to go down into Egypt. The promise of the land. He has to trust that they will come back and the promise will be fulfilled. Don't we also, in order to take hold of our inheritance, the promise that we have, don't we also at some point have to let go of the promise of life in order to go down and be resurrected and have life? God promised, I myself will go down, descend with you, and and I will come back. Is that not what the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is all about? I'd suggest to you that if I were picking, and, and, and I like to just think about things like this because we can never know the answer, of course. But if I were picking, you know, so which verses? You remember that, that time after the resurrection, a couple of disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus suddenly appears. They don't know it's Jesus. And he's talking to them, and then they end up having dinner, and he reveals himself, and he explains to them how in the Holy Scriptures that he must die and rise again on the third day. And, and he's explaining this from the Old Testament Scriptures. Have you ever wondered what verses did he go to? Well, I'm going to put this verse, this verses 3 through 7, on my top 10 list of verses Jesus went to. I, I can't prove that, that it's on there, but you can't prove it wasn't either because we don't know, right? And, and, and so I put it on here because I like to speculate what it could be. And this would, would be at least in my top 10, maybe higher than that. But, but here, here we are. Did not God himself, through the incarnation, descend from heaven to earth? But even more than that, he descended into death, into the grave. We call it Hades, the grave. And and do we not come back up with him in the resurrection? This is Emmanuel, God with us. But Emmanuel, God with us, is not just about Christmas. It's also about Good Friday and Easter. God with us, who descends with us, not just to become a man, but he descends to become obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He's buried in a tomb with us. And he's raised on the third day, and we this time get to come out with him. We see this pictured in baptism. We've talked about it recently. I die. In baptism, we get this picture of it because in baptism, like Jacob who went down as a man, Israel as a man went down to, 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 to Egypt. But when they came out, they came out as a nation. When, when I'm baptized, it's a picture of the fact that when I come to Christ, I die. I am crucified with Christ. But when I come out, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I don't come out an individual by myself. I come out a person who's a part of a people. I come out one of the people of God. I come out part of the nation. I come out the body of Christ, not individually, but a part thereof, a member thereof. And so like, like Israel, who goes down a man and comes out a nation, so we too, when we descend with Christ in the waters of baptism, more likely he with us, we then are raised with him 
in the resurrection. Jesus, as a representative, faithful Israel, died and was raised. And in him the whole nation is raised, the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians. Well, this picture of Israel going to Egypt and coming out a nation is a picture of this. It foreshadows the reality. We also see it in the 70 who go down. Look with me at verses 26 and 27 of the same chapter. All those who went down to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons, with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. So in other words, you've got to add Jacob, Joseph, and the two sons. That makes 66 plus 4. Gives you 70. Now, the 70 is a representative number. It's a number that to them represented the, the makings of a small nation. It, it, it was the, the start of a nation, if you will. And, and here they are, 70. They go down as a, an, an embryo nation, but will come back as a massive people. But they had to go down in order to live because of the famine. And yet, in a very real sense, as a people, as a nation, they die there. But in that death, they continue to increase and multiply into a whole nation. But that's the book of Exodus, and we're getting ahead of the story. Here's something else interesting about that number 70. I mean, if you read through that and you keep track and count, it's it's interesting, I mean, how they arrive at 70. And the purpose was to, to show 70, but... But, but it's interesting that there are two included in that 70, and it even points this out. It says, well, that, that Ur and Onan, those are the two, first two sons of Judah, the ones who died because of their wickedness. Remember the story back in chapter 38 of, of Genesis? Well, they died because of their wickedness, and that's already happened. It happened maybe a couple of few years prior, a year or two prior to this event. They're dead. But it tells us that although they're dead, verse 12 that they're counted in the, in the 70. Listen, death does not separate us from the people of God. Isn't that glorious news? We, we, we belong forever with the communion of the saints. We, we, we stay a part of that. And they, and they even died in sin. I mean, they, theirs was a messed up life. And yet they're still counted amongst the people of God. And even though they're counted amongst those who go down to Egypt, they've already died, but yet they're counted amongst those who go down and come back up. There's just something glorious about the grace of God I see pictured in that little detail. We don't cease to be a part of the people of God just because we die. Well, the blessing means that God is with you, that he will fulfill his promise to you. And the cross makes clear that this promise does does not merely mean that he is with us in some sort of omnipresent way. You know, God's with you. No, that's not what it means. It means he's with you in your suffering. That he joins you in your suffering, in our sufferings. That he might be with us enough that he bring, can bring us out of our suffering. And we can then go with him through resurrection. But we must remember that God with us is also God uh, with us for others. It's a blessing of God with us for others. Look with us. Look with me under the second heading. The blessing is for others. And look at verse 28. Chapter 46, verse 28. Now Jacob 
sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Now, there's a little bit of an awkwardness in this scene. If you remember the scene just in the previous chapter of, of Benjamin, he, Joseph throws his arms around Benjamin and weeps, but, but, but Benjamin also weeps. And we, we read about this mutuality. There's none of that here. It's a bit awkward. Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you're still alive. Now, it reveals a little bit of something about my, my age and my upbringing, my, my childhood choices, maybe we could say. That when I read this scene, and this has been true since I've probably been a teenager, that every time I read this scene, I'm reminded a little bit as if it were a scene out of the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, about that point in the Beverly Hillbillies when Jethro and family, uh, or Jed Clampett and his family, and Jethro and Ellie Mae and Granny, that, that, when they arrive in the Bever- at Beverly Hills, and everybody's like, you're Clampett, the, the millionaire, you, the oil type. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's, it's awkward. Because here they are in all the plush and, and, and polish of Beverly Hills, and you've got these Arkansas, which I was raised near there, so you can kind of see the connection. And, and, and it probably explains a lot. But, but <clears throat> here, here they are, and, and, and they arrive. Well, that, that actually might be a, a right way to understand this scene. Canaan had never had the the likes of chariots and horses. The the glorious empire of Egypt under Pharaoh represents the height of human achievement at that time. It's a veritable resurrection of Babel. Actually, in biblical terms, it's very much that. And here comes the leader of the, the promised people of God. With his donkeys and mules and most of what he has with him is stuff they had to send from Egypt for him and to carry him there and he's being carried along. And, and Joseph, his son, it's, 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 there are allusions in a number of places, the, the meal in the last scene, this scene and Esau and Jacob, there are allusions that are picked up on in the story of the prodigal son. But here it is again, this allusion, but now it's not the father going out to meet the son, it's the son going out to meet the father. With the same kind of excitement that you envision in the story of the prodigal son. Joseph with his chariot and horses. He's on his way and he goes and he meets dad and he's all excited. And he gets his dad and a hug and he's weeping. And it's almost as if Jacob is like, uh, yeah, that's a little odd. You know, I've seen you. Okay, I'm ready to die. Anyway, I can't wait to catch up. No, I'm ready to die. It's so awkward. And I don't think Jacob's overly impressed with the chariot and the horses, to be frank with you. He's certainly not excited. I think he, he may be a little taken aback at just how absorbed Joseph appears to be in the culture of Egypt. He's very Egyptian, which would concern Jacob. And then we arrive at the scene of the Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Read with me in verse 7. And I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version just because 
there are a few things that, that I think are vital to capturing this that I want, I want to keep. So I'm, I'm reading it there. Um, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil, or maybe more likely few and difficult, or possibly few and inferior, have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers, and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So notice verse 7, Jacob stands before Pharaoh and blesses him. And then in verse 10, he blesses Pharaoh and then departs from before Pharaoh. So you have this kind of bookended thing which emphasizes the blessing itself, what's in between. The conversation that goes on kind of tells you something about this blessing and what's taking place. But here we have Jacob, the sojourner from the land of Canaan, blessing Pharaoh, the ruler of the most powerful kingdom on all, in all the earth. And yet we know from the book of Hebrews that the lesser is blessed by the... Say it again. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So let's get this straight. Pharaoh, the ruler of all the kingdoms of all the earth. Jacob, sojourner, having to come there because he's going to starve to death otherwise and his family is going to not survive, um, is blessing Pharaoh. (laughs) Yet the lesser Pharaoh is blessed by the greater Jacob. That doesn't quite compute from an earthly perspective, now does it? But indeed it's true. Indeed it's true because if Pharaoh had only known, if he had a clue who was standing before him, He would have begged for that blessing. He gets it. But he would have begged for it. The one who held the keys to the blessing of Abraham is standing in front of him. The keys to life itself. I'm reminded of the woman at the well. When Jesus asked her for something to drink, she she says, you're asking a woman to drink. And then he says what? He says, if you knew... The gift of God and who is sitting right here in front of you? Who's asking you for a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember her question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes. But the same applied to Jacob. If Pharaoh had only known who was standing before him, he would have asked him for the blessing of life. I think we get a clue at that just a little bit in the the dialogue that takes place here. See, Jesus is indeed greater, but initially, at least Pharaoh has no idea just how much greater or more valuable. He really never does get that. Because Jacob's here, he's a dying man, but there's a hint. Pharaoh asks a question. Uh, Maybe maybe Pharaoh's wondering, why why are you blessing me? But but Pharaoh asks a question. And, and the question is not as it reads in the New International. I mean, it's accurate as far as how we might understand the question, but it's not really what was said, where it says, how old are you? Part of why I use the ESV, one of two reasons. But how old are you? The, the question is not focused on age, which, which would be then focusing on dying and death. The question is, how many are the years of your life? The, fo- the focus is on life. 
How many are the years of your life? 130 years and still ticking. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, because it proves that he has something to offer Pharaoh. Life. You see, in Egyptian culture at that time, the Egyptians aspired to a long life. And for them to achieve that great aspiration of a long life would be to live to be 110 years old. And no matter how old-looking and aged Jacob may appear at the moment, he's, how old? He's 130. That's like 20 years. That's two decades beyond. And he goes on to live another 17 years, we later discover in the text, to be 147. And even at that, he says, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but yeah, that's nothing. My, 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 my dad and my granddad, now they, they, my dad and my granddad, they lived 180 and 175 years respectively. Now, that's, that's life, yeah, yeah, that's what I, mine, my mind's few, but that, that's something. And Pharaoh's probably thinking, I'll take 130. Probably didn't reach 100, but he'd like that. And yet the greater one. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, back to the woman at the well. He doesn't just offer a blessing of life or long life. He offers the blessing of eternal life. Amen? But here Jacob is standing before Pharaoh. The lesser is being blessed by the greater. Maybe, maybe that's why Jesus tells the disciples that they, they need not fear when they stand before kings and princes and judges and rulers Why? Because they represent the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that's greater than all. Amen? And yet, Jacob, despite his long life, despite having the blessing of Abraham, which which is what he wanted more than anything, as we saw earlier in his story, his years have been few, not to Pharaoh maybe, but to him, compared to his dad and granddad, and difficult, maybe inferior, Maybe difficult, painful, probably not evil. The word can have a variety of meanings there. God's blessing doesn't promise a life of comfort and ease or the luxury of earthly kingdoms. Pharaoh, by that measure, would have appeared more blessed even now than Jacob. The blessing of God comes to us, and, and, and yet we, we receive it as sojourners and pilgrims, and we remain sojourners and pilgrims. Maybe Jacob, who had striven for the blessing, which was rightfully his, maybe he never realized that the blessing was not for his own benefit alone. Laban, his father-in-law, was blessed because of Jacob. We saw that in that story, how his herds increased in flocks and and so forth, because of Jacob. But it did so at a cost to Jacob. Toil, labor, trickery that he was deceived by. Now he stands before Pharaoh and is blessing Pharaoh. But this is coming at a cost to Jacob, to Israel, and his family. They've had to leave the land of promise. He had to be without his son for 25 years for this to even happen thinking that he was dead. Paul labored as, as from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a, a Jew. He labored for the blessing of Abraham. He wanted it more than anything. He was willing to kill in order to get it. And yet when he found it, or rather we should say when it found him on the road to Damascus, 
It came at a cost. Jacob here in this scene, he's not exactly the picture that we would envision on that poster that's titled hashtag blessed. I mean, he's, he's aged, he's, well, my years have been few and difficult or maybe inferior way, full of pain. Hashtag blessed, what? And yet he's the recipient of the blessing. You know, we come to Christ because we want that blessing. Indeed, we should want that blessing. But too often, we don't realize that it is not for our own benefit that we get that blessing. It comes to us at a cost. It means that God is with us, but it means that God is with us for others. And there's a cost in that. The longer we live and the longer we serve the Lord, whether we do it, we're talking about ministry or life, when we do it as as His servants and people, there's... A cost. I've experienced it. I've seen it in you. We, we, we walk through it. You see it in, 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 in marriages. You see it in parenting children. There's a cost, right? To, to, to lay down our lives, to bring children up and teaching them the ways of the Lord. There's a cost. And it's difficult. I've got this blessing from God, and I thought it meant we were going to have this wonderful life. Well, yeah, sort of. (laughs) But filled with tensions and difficulties and pain and dreams and expectations not fulfilled. Have you felt that cost? In what ways have you felt that cost? Think about the ways that It has cost you to receive the blessing of Abraham through Christ. When we receive this blessing, we we also become sojourners. And maybe here Jacob is downplaying his life because he's standing in front of Pharaoh and feels inferior. Or maybe he's a bit melancholy because of all the pain he's experienced to get to this place. I, I think it's probably the latter. But the blessing that he offers is the blessing of Abraham. Listen to the blessing of Abraham given in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Pharaoh has indeed blessed Abraham's descendants by giving them the land of Goshen and by providing exalting Joseph and having given them food and sent this caravan and now he is being blessed by Jacob. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. For now in Egypt, because of Joseph, all peoples on earth are being blessed through Abraham. And it's through Joseph's actions in the next scene that, that Pharaoh receives the blessing that he's now receiving from Jacob. But it's not Joseph's blessing. It's the blessing that came from Abraham through Jacob. When, when, when we live in this world and others are blessed because of us and others should be blessed because of us. When we do, it's not because of some personal blessing we've gotten from God that now they're, oh, I'm so blessed by God that they've got it. Well, you are, but it's not just some blessing you've got. It's the blessing of Abraham that belongs to Christ, that because you're in Christ you have. That's the blessing. And that's a different story. 
an important story. We can't neglect that. And now they live in a a land. They live outside the land. They've gone down to Egypt. But within that land of Egypt, outside the land of promise, they live in a land. A land that is a place of life. A land that they gather together in and it's different than the rest of Egypt. Read this in verse 11 of chapter 47. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in the land of Egypt. It says in Egypt, but the should read in the land of Egypt. And gave them property in the best part of the land, the district or land of Ramsey as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. The, 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 the word for land is used three times in verse 11. That's why I emphasized it and added it where it needed to be from the original. Just to point that out because... It emphasizes the fact that the heirs of the promise, the promised what? The promised land. Yes, the blessing of Abraham, but that was to be given to them in the form of a promised land. They're now outside the land, and it's like it keeps rubbing on the sore spot. You know, it keeps pushing on where it hurts. Yet God is using this land that's in Egypt, in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, to provide for them. Until one day they return to the land. What can we learn from this? I think there's a few things we can learn. One, God, God provides for his people in their sojourning. Their sojourning, they're away from the land. And God provides for you and I in our sojourning. We're aliens and strangers in this world, but God will provide for us in this. Amen? I think another thing we can learn from that is that the family of Israel, notice that they go to Egypt, but now they're kept distinct from Egypt. I think Joseph was probably very wise in saying, hey, tell Pharaoh your shepherds. That'll put you over there. Why? I don't think you guys mixing as wicked as you've shown yourselves to be. I don't think you guys mixing in the city would be a good idea. Not a good idea at all. So here, your shepherds. Never really thought very highly of their shepherding back when he was 17. But now all of a sudden, he thinks they're really good shepherds. Why? You'll get sent to the land of Goshen where they can then live separately and have a, a distinction of life. And so although they're scattered from the land of promise, they're gathered in the land of exile. I think this land outside the land of promise is a picture of the church. We are scattered in this world. All week long we live and work in the world. But every Sunday, the Lord's Day, we gather. We get our starting point by gathering together and recognizing that we are separate. That we are the people of God. And we come here and we, we find life in the forgiveness of, of our sins. Through the, we, we sing about it. We preach about it. We talk about it. Because why? Because that's where our life, and our life is. And we, we worship God. We, we return to that place where we are a, the people of God. Separate and distinct, so that the rest of the week, as we're scattered abroad and exiles in this world, we can have a distinction and recognize we are called to be a holy people. We come and worship together. We come to Goshen, the place of life in the midst of exile. We come to the land within the land. We, we, we taste a bit of heaven on earth. Of sins forgiven. Here we gather around Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We join with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven according to the book of Hebrews. As with Jacob, we receive the blessing for the sake of others also. Jacob has blessed Pharaoh with the blessing of Abraham, and in the next scene, 
this blessing will be revealed, how it is affected. So we're going to just look two more brief points, but the, the first in, is the blessing is through you. And we see that in, in chapter 47, verses 13 through 26, and, and I'm not going to read all of that, but it is an admittedly difficult section to understand, and I think largely because we, we, we read it through the lens of American idealism. You know, we, we see how government should work, and we look at what Joseph does, and we're like, what? I mean, he's taking everything, and what? I mean, what is he doing, right? But I think in order to understand it, we have to try to read it through the lens of the ancient, the ancient world. We can't read it through the philosophies that were developed in the 1700s. We have to read it through what, how they viewed things in the ancient world. And what is clear in this text when we do that is that the blessing which Jacob gives Pharaoh is, is, is fulfilled through what Joseph brings about for Pharaoh. And you'll notice there are, there are four, there's a fourfold effect of this blessing that Pharaoh received from Jacob that's now given to him through Joseph. And, and you'll notice those four things. In verse 14, Joseph collected all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and it was given to Pharaoh. And then in verse 17, all the livestock in the land of Egypt was now collected by Joseph and the implication is for Pharaoh. And then in verse 20, all the land in Egypt is now belonging to Pharaoh. And then in verse... Um, uh, 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 where are we at here? Verse 24. But when the crop, when the crop comes in, give, they give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. And the other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourself. So he gets this 20%, this fifth of everything in perpetuity going forth, going forward. So, so Pharaoh, the blessing that Jacob gives Pharaoh actually is fulfilled by Joseph's wise administration. By the way, you notice that, therefore, all three people that, that Joseph worked for, Potiphar, the prison warden, and Pharaoh, were blessed because Joseph worked for them. Could, could you take your resume and just look at your list of people you've worked for in your life and say, all of them were blessed because I worked for them? Now, that ought to be the case, amen? That ought to be the case, that they were blessed because you worked for them. How how did the Egyptians view Joseph? We see it in verse 25. You saved our lives. Joseph, who's a type of Christ, he's been that throughout the story, foreshadowing Jesus. They they look at him as a savior. You saved our lives. But how would the Israelites have seen this whole thing? How would they have read these verses about what Joseph did in Egypt? Well, I think, number one, they would rejoice. Now, again, the Israelites are reading this either in the wilderness or later when they're in the land of promise, right? When this book is written and given to them about these events. So how would it, what would have it meant to them? Well, they would rejoice that Yahweh doesn't allow Israel's kings to own land. Israel's kings were forbidden to own land. Pharaoh now has all the land, but Israel's kings were forbidden. Everybody, God owned all the land and everybody had an inheritance. And so they didn't know the king anything. For the land, that came from God. It was a gift from God. So they rejoice in the grace and favor of God. And then you notice that, that, that in, if you read the, the text, and we didn't, don't have time to read it all today, but you'll notice that Pharaoh, that none of the priests in Egypt, of course these were ungodly priests, but none of them had to give up their land because none of them had to buy food because Pharaoh provided all their food. Now what's interesting is if you read that story and pay attention, is that same is true for Israel in the land of Goshen. Everything's provided for them, so they didn't have to lose their land. They didn't have to lose anything. So you have a foreshadowing of, of the fact that we'll see in the book of Exodus that, 
that the, king, the people of Israel are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just a hint at that. And of course, we are now that kingdom of priests and that holy nation, a people set apart for God's purposes. And then I think there are a couple of things there that are tied together. Israel's priests, later, not here, right now you've got Egypt's priests. Egypt's priests had land, but Israel's priests had no land. They had to trust the Lord and the people. And the Israelites, the people of Israel, who had the land, had to provide for the, the priests, the Levites and the, and the priests. They, the, the servants of God's ministry. They, they expressed faith in God by providing for those who did the ministry of the Lord full time. And that creates a relationship between the people and those who serve them in ministry. It doesn't create a relationship between the king and those who do ministry, like you had in Egypt. The, 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 the priests were beholden to Pharaoh. But in Christian ministry... The, 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 the people of God are never to be holden. The, the servants of God that do pulpit ministry are never to be beholden to the king, but to the people. Well, the blessing of Abraham through Jacob, because of it, Pharaoh now prospers. And then finally, in just a, a brief point, the blessing points to a promise. The blessing points to a promise. L- look with me in verse 27 of chapter 47. Now the Israelites settled in the land of Egypt, in the region or the land of Goshen. They acquired property there, or better, they possessed it and took hold of it, and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes... Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness, but do not bury me in Egypt. But when, the, when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. The Israelites are prospering in the midst of this famine, just like Pharaoh was. They're foreigners in a strange land, but they're possessing the land and being fruitful and multiplying. And that's what God's blessing looks like on God's people. Listen, the Christian life should not look like a bunch of people sitting around for Jesus to return. For crying out loud, like we're heading to the the metaphorical mountain waiting for Jesus to come back and pick us up. We need to possess the land and be fruitful and multiply in the land. Yes, we are awaiting a new creation, but we are new creations, and wherever we are, we need to be turning the world into new creation as best we can, being fruitful and multiplying. And that's what we are called to do. And that's what the blessing uh, enables us to do. But then Jacob makes Joseph promise that he would not be buried in Egypt, but would be buried in the land of promise. You see, for Jacob, death is not the end of the promise. He knew that its fulfillment was not in Egypt, but it was in another place. So he dies in hope. According to Hebrews 11, he was looking for the new Jerusalem. Well, the blessing of Abraham means that God is with you. The blessing of Abraham means that God is with you for others. The blessing of Abraham means that God is with you for others and that God will bless others through you. And though it genuinely will bring blessing to us. It always points us to a promise, to something beyond this life, to new creation, to resurrection. 
You, you may, because of this blessing, experience things like a promotion at work, favor in your job. But the blessing itself aims for something even greater than that. But we will always find at different points in our life that the blessing comes with a cost. At times, pain and difficulty. It's free, but there's a cost after we've received it. You know, in, the, in, in the Christian tradition, the services end with a, what's called a benediction, which is just another word for blessing. It's not exactly praying for the people of God. It's blessing the people of God. And that tradition comes from number 6, where we read the Lord telling Moses, says, he says, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. You see, this blessing is no small thing. It's it's, it's not somebody standing up and giving you something in their name. It's the blessing of Abraham. That's being pronounced on you. That's what blessing means, to speak a good word. Because God creates the world through His word. And He renovates and revives the world with His word. And so He blesses us with His word. And that is what is proclaimed in His name when we bless the people of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Many of us, we arrive in having experienced either now or recently that pain, that difficulty, that suffering, that cost that comes with the blessing. And it, and it is mixed, Lord. It's hard. Sometimes having the blessing means that others are blessed through our suffering as we were blessed through Christ's suffering. We, we are able to share in his sufferings when that happens. But it's hard. No matter how long our lives have been and how much you've blessed us, sometimes like Jacob we might say, our life and our years have been few and difficult. Some days that's certainly how we feel. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and that you would encourage us and with the promise that you are with us And help us to set our hope on the new creation and resurrection. Amen.